0: Hey, TYT, I'm Nomi Konst. Uh, today we have a great interview about the rise in hate crime in America. You may have seen statistics coming from the FBI, uh, really, that started uh, exploding, you know, the statistics that would come out during the Obama administration, but obviously it's much more apparent and um, potent under President Trump. Uh, we have the executive director of the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence project, project, which publishes the award-winning intelligence report and the Hate Watch blog. We have Heidi Bayrick uh, who is joining us today. And thank you, Heidi, for, for taking the time to speak with us. Wow, oh, thanks for having me. So uh, is it true that there's a rise in hate crime, or has it always kind of existed?
1: You know, there's there's real evidence right now that we've seen an uptick sort of over the last couple years, basically starting with the uh, presidential campaign and then in this uh, first year of Trump's presidency. And that has revealed itself in the FBI numbers, although we don't have numbers for 2016 yet, but we have the time period of the uh, campaign. So we know that to be the case from that data, which showed an uptick. We also have data from a lot of big cities that's more recent, places like Los Angeles, San Diego, New York, that all also showed um, that hate crime was going up. You know on top of that, a lot of organizations like the Southern Poverty Law Center, places like uh, Muslim Advocates, the Anti-Defamation League, were collecting information on hate and bias incidents right after the election. And have consolidated all of that data in a project at ProPublica called Documenting Hate, and that information as well adds to the same thing that the FBI was finding—that these are numbers that went up. However, I must say, when it comes to hate crimes in the United States, we undercount them really, really terribly. So the FBI, uh, for years, has reported—you know—somewhere between five and six thousand hate crimes. But the Department of Justice has done uh, now three massive surveys. So instead of looking at data on hate crimes that comes from law enforcement reporting it to the FBI, they asked Americans about their experience uh, with crime, all kinds of crime, but including hate crime. And what they found is that the number of hate crimes in the United States is more like 250,000 a year, as opposed to the 6,000 that the FBI reports, right? And that's the government saying this. So... The problem here is we don't count enough, we don't do a good enough job to really get a serious handle on how many hate crimes there are in the United States, and it's a it's a terrible um, thing to not have data about something when you're trying to address a social problem.
0: What, what do you define as a hate crime?
1: Sure. Hate crimes are either property crimes or think, like what you normally think of robbery, assault, rape, et cetera in which there's an expression on the part of the perpetrator of some kind of animus that can be anti-black, anti-Muslim, anti-Semitic. It can be against disabled people, anti-woman, but there has to be something with the perpetrator that shows bias. Otherwise you can't um, charge somebody with a hate crime. And that's what makes it a little different than a lot of crimes, right? Like a straight robbery is one thing, a robbery where the perpetrator says something like, you know, die Jew, some terrible thing. That would throw that into a hate crime category.
0: And you also monitor hate groups. How do you, does, you know, what qualifies an organization as a hate group? I've, I've heard a lot of pushback online from some of these hate groups and people who've been associated with them saying, you know, we're we're not hate groups, we're just, you know. Pushing our message and our agenda.
1: Well, there's a couple of things about this. I mean, most people broadly, when they think of hate groups, forget what the Southern Poverty Law Center says, they think of the Klan, right? They think of neo-Nazis. And those are all kinds of organizations that are on our our list. But we don't list groups just if they're violent. What we do is we look at their ideology. So we want to know, does the organization consider a whole other group of people basically to be lesser So if you're talking about neo-Nazis, they obviously think Jews are, you know, terrible people and should be exterminated. They think that they shouldn't exist. That's a very extreme version. But we also have groups like anti-Muslim groups that describe all Muslims, for example, as terrorists, right, or as an existential threat to American democracy, that's the same kind of thing, labeling a whole group of people as a danger. And the organizations that have the most have been, you know, historically the most pushback against the SPLC's listing of them as a hate group are anti-LGBT groups. And we list those organizations when they demonize the gay population. If they say all gay men are pedophiles, all gay men are molesters. This is defamatory stuff. It's just total lies. And a lot of times what these groups say to us is, you list us because you're against gay marriage. That is absolutely not the case. If we were to do that, we would be listing a lot of churches across this country, and we and we don't. So really, what are we looking at at a hate group? Do they describe a group of people based on their inherent characteristics as lesser? And you know, ultimately what we're concerned about is when you think that all black people, for example, are criminals or rapists, which is what a lot of white supremacists would say. That makes that population very vulnerable to hate violence and domestic terrorism. And that's the ugliness at the end of the sort of hate propaganda road.
0: When you identify a group that that might be a new group, um, how... Is are you doing the work? Is it coming from the FBI? Like where does the monitoring, the early monitoring come in? Like what's what's the strategy?
1: Well, a lot of the groups that we have on our list have been on there a long time, right? And it's sort of a no-brainer when you think about a Klan group, a Nazi group, and so on. But we also have staff that spend basically all day long looking at hate forums, hate websites. We still read hate publications like hard copy publications where hate groups will, you know, say we're having a meeting. You know, at the local Hilton, I mean, they literally do this at hotels and whatnot. So that's one body of information that we use to list, you know, to base our listings on. We also use the work of journalists, right? They're going out and covering hate groups. They report when a cross has been burned, and that material is very valuable to us. We also get information from law enforcement. Um, if, if we are close to law enforcement, we do a lot of trainings around the country where we talk about the violent hate groups, and we'll have cops tell us, this group's operating in this area, or you should look into this, this is something you should be aware of. So it's sort of a combination of all these things that help us to um, build the hate list.
0: Right before we started this interview, I was watching Congressman Adam Schiff as of today, this is Thursday, February 1st, we're doing this interview, uh, he gave a, a press conference about the Russia investigation and the use of social media and and their mirroring um, and enabling uh, hateful, you know, rhetoric online, uh, not just through bots, but, you know, mimicking uh, what some groups, for instance, they're, 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 he used an example of they're pushing for the Second Amendment and creating their own little channels for Second Amendment uh, people, advocates to to join and, and umping the message quite a bit uh, about arming themselves. And I'm curious how your work intersects with This crisis that we have now that is just something that I I don't think most people would have ever imagined that, you know, Russia would be would be uh, weaponizing different groups. I mean, some of them are to the left and some of them are definitely to the far right. And I would probably say use hateful rhetoric um, and advocate for for hate and violence. How does. How are you um, maneuvering this, this new land? This-
1: <laughs> well, we had, you know, th- this Russian situation has been interesting in many ways. We have had the odd situation uh, in the last year or so that Russian fake Facebook groups were motivating the kinds of extremists we track at the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center to hold actual demonstrations So we had like armed demonstrations in front of a mosque in Texas that was completely driven by fake Russian accounts. And it's not just that, there were anti-LGBT things, anti-refugee events. Um, So I'm not exactly sure how we got here, but Russians are stoking hate in the United States and convincing Americans that are attracted to these ideas to actually take to, to the streets. So that's the Russian part of the hate movement in the United States. There's also just the issue that hate groups are actually very savvy online, right? They know that a newspaper is not going to publicize their belief, you know, their horrible beliefs about black people or Jews or whatever. So from the very get go, from the 1990s, when the World Wide Web was created and all that, they have been there pushing their messages and the platforms, the mainstream platforms like Twitter and Facebook and so on have been a godsend to them in terms of propagandizing until very recently. After the riots in Charlottesville, most of these websites have started to clean up their platforms from hate speech. They're by no means all the way there, but they're making an effort at it. And what this has done is it's allowed the mainstream, just regular people, to be exposed to ideas that used to be isolated on the fringe. And that's a very frightening development.
0: It's fascinating. I mean, I even just looked at my Twitter account uh, a couple of days ago, and I said, I, I think it's gone down quite a bit. I'm, I don't know what happened. And then, of course, Twitter announced that they were clearing up, uh, you know, the accounts of, of Russian bots and people who, you know, were propagating. I mean, obviously, we're on the left, so you never know who's going to follow you. Uh, <laughs> just for a personal story. Um, we're looking at a White House right now where you – had someone like sebastian gorka in the inner circle and now you have stephen miller uh these aren't closeted um neo-nazi sympathizers these are open neo-nazi sympathizers and it's i think the concern went from how people are organizing in the shadows to now they're out in the open how much of a of a what difference does it make that you have an administration that's welcoming people who come from hate groups? I mean, are you seeing a like a, an institutional validation? Um, you know, maybe maybe like more legitimate Republicans in office. Saying, you know what, I sympathize with that. Are, are, do you see this, this happening kind of across the board nationally, not just at the White House?
1: Look, I think this is a very scary proposition. I mean, this country after uh, the mid-60s when we passed the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, has tried very much imperfectly, but to put bigotry and racism to the side, right? You know, for the entire history of the United States until that time period, it, by law, we oppressed people of color. So there's this attempt to not use the N-word, to try not to make racial appeals in politics. Like I said, it's never perfect. People would dog whistle. There was the Southern strategy. But there has never been this blatant of connections in administration to hate groups, anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim ones like Gorka had, or, or to mainstreaming ideas that were completely on the fringe. The kinds of people behind the immigration policies that Trump is supporting, these are movements founded in white nationalism. You know, sometimes I talk, talk to people and I say, if you think back to 2006, when George Allen running as a Senate candidate in Virginia, right, Republican, he used the word macaca, slur for black people, one time, and he was out of the race a week later. And what we have going on right now is the equivalent of something like that being said constantly, and there have been no repercussions. And there are a lot of Republicans who may not be, you know, openly demonizing on the basis of race, but they're not saying anything about what the Trump administration is doing. They're not denouncing the origins of these ideas or their views. And, you know, even though Gork is gone and Steve Bannon's gone, you know, who famously called, you know, his Breitbart a platform for the alt-right, we still have a lot of very radical people in this administration, the head of the education department, people in HHS. And Stephen Miller, who you pointed out, whose views on immigration are far out of the mainstream and much closer to hate groups like the Federation for American Immigration Reform, so this is sort of a shocking turn. It's like we've gone backwards 50 years. It's uh, it's really upsetting, and it's been accompanied by you know widespread hate violence, growing hate violence, and emboldened hate movement. I didn't think you know I've been working at the Southern Poverty Law Center almost 20 years. I didn't think I would ever see this. I thought we were on a path to less of this, not more of this, and certainly not at the level of the American presidency and the administration. Uh,
0: in cities like, I, I live in New York, I live in Queens, it's an incredibly diverse uh, part of New York City, and one of the refreshing things, obviously, about living in New York is that there's just this inherent uh, acceptance of, of the diversity of culture. Of course, you're going to have you know people who are more passionate about their specific culture, and sometimes that can go at odds politically. Um, but I was, I've I'm, I'm been really shocked to see, I mean, there was a, a, an imam that was um, shot and killed in Queens, uh, you know, a little over 10 months ago. There has been, there were hate crimes, I mean, literally hate, it was a hate crime down the street from my apartment in my neighborhood. Um, I, is it shocking for you or is this just sort of a mis, misnomer about big cities where there's diversity? Is it shocking for you to see the spike in these cities?
1: You know, I think we're having a bit of a plague situation going on right now. Hate tends to drive up more hate. Um, and and when people are ginned up on these ideas, this kind of, you know, in your case, you're talking about an imam, you know, anti-Muslim rhetoric has just infected the political system. And their words do have consequences. I mean, you might have the freedom to say these things. But you don't have the right to sort of act as though you can't embolden people to commit violence. So in this heightened environment where there's so much anti-Muslim rhetoric, anti-gay rhetoric, you know, basically people of color, women, it, that's what you get. You get hate violence. That is the result of that. So no, I'm not surprised to see it affecting um, just about every part of the country, right? Because this has been basically injected into the, you know, the national you know, blood system. It's, um, it's really awful.
0: Um, before we go, I I have a question about the role of the media in reporting the hate crimes. You know, there's, there's this theory that if these crimes are reported more then they're likely to happen again. Do you, do you buy into that?
1: No. I mean, look, there's a lot of discussion in the media, both about the reporting on hate crimes and reporting on hate groups. Like, are we unfairly giving them publicity, Right. And should we even be drawing attention to them? They're a a fringe group of people. Well, first of all, I don't think they are that fringe of a group of people. There was a Washington Post-ABC News poll a few months ago in which 9% of Americans said they are fine with either neo-Nazi or white supremacist views. If you extrapolate that out to the American public, that's 22 million people. So now I'm not saying every one of those people would commit a hate crime. I don't mean that but that they would say it's okay to have those views is shocking. So this is a serious phenomenon in our society and the media has got to cover serious stuff. We've got hate violence, domestic terrorism, things like Charlottesville. And even though as a reporter, you might think, geez, you know, I hate, I just can't, this is a terrible thing to have to cover. This is a real problem in the society. And so I feel like the media doesn't really have a choice on on this matter.
0: You know, there's been a debate about Antifa, um, the anti-fascist group and, uh, We've covered them a lot. Um, oh, uh, out of you know whether or not they should be pushing back physically against these uh, you know extremist organizations, we saw it in Charlottesville specifically. Um, and there's there's a legitimate, I would say, for, from my perspective, having listened to them a little bit more, um, there's a legitimate historical reference, meaning we've been here before and we had some groups had to arm themselves and fight back. I personally have no opinion on this, but. It leads to the question that we're actually we're actually having this conversation. There are young people who are having this conversation about how do you fight back against such extremism when they're not playing fair. What, what do you what do you think? I mean, you're. You're very familiar with the history of this. Like, how? What's the best way to fight back at this point?
1: I don't think violence is the way to react at this point. I, you know, I take great issue uh, with Antifa's tax tactics when it gets to that point. And the Southern Poverty Law Center, for a long time, has been on the record saying violence is not the answer to this. Protest and peaceful protest, I think, can be extremely powerful. You know, I think a little bit along the lines of Martin Luther King. I think if if a white supremacist comes and speaks on your campus and you are angry they're there, which is understandable, I think it'd be more powerful to have a room that's totally silent with their backs to him. I mean, I don't, you know, as far as violence goes, that should very much be a last resort, and we're not anywhere close to that. And so um, I encourage the protesters and the people connected to Antifa to keep up the fight. This is great, right? Let the world know that you don't stand for this. But the violence that's erupted in some places um, is really unacceptable, and the Law Center and I myself just think that you know, civil disobedience is one thing, peaceful protest is one thing, but that we don't need.
0: And there's also the question of, of who, where is that violence even actually coming from? There've, there's been some recent reports saying that there um, may be some other individuals out there organizing to create disruption um, and
1: chaos. Well, we saw the Russians do it, right? (laughs) So it's entirely possible.
0: Fascinating conversation. Uh, We could go on for, I think, another hour. I have so many more questions. Heidi Bayrick, thank you for joining us today um, on TYT, and we'll be watching closely. Um, Executive Director of the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project, which publishes uh, the Intelligence Report and the Hate Watch blog. Definitely go and check it out. It's fascinating (laughs) and scary. (laughs) Thank you, Heidi.
1: Thanks for having me.